Well, I'm so glad you could all be here. What a wonderful atmosphere. Just even before the ceremony started, just the energy and the love and the joy coming from this room. So powerful to see all those people coming together with a common love for Casey and Jimmy. So wonderful. Obviously, I'm not Dennis Roxer. I'm his alter ego. Uh, He couldn't be here today due to a family emergency, so I've been asked to fill in. You're effectively getting the B team here. So, (laughs) But when we think about weddings, they're usually accompanied by a great sense of celebration. That's why it was so appropriate the way you were milling about and enjoying each other's company and just enjoying being a part of this earlier. And that's appropriate from God's perspective as you think about weddings being something to celebrate. You see, God designed marriages, and he says they're a good thing. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-one says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing, and other translations have a treasure. He who finds a wife finds a treasure and obtains favor from the Lord. Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter in the first book of the Bible, in verse 18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. You see, everything that God had created up to that point was very good, including Adam. But he looked at that situation and he said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet. Now that could be translated a helpmate, a companion, a spouse. Are there translations for that? For him. He goes on a few verses later to say, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. As Jesus was speaking about marriages being worth celebrating, and then if marriages are worth celebrating, then weddings are worth celebrating as well. Jesus in Mark chapter 10 verse 9, he said, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. He placed a really high value on the importance of marriages. And so what a cause to celebrate today as two people are going to join together Two believers are going to be joined together here today to have a marriage together, Lord willing, as God intended. That's something to celebrate. God says that's the case. But weddings are also usually overflowing with love as well. Not just a sense of celebration, but wedding ceremonies have a lot of love in them. The shared love that the couple have for each other, which you can see in their faces here. Well, not right that second. Now you see it in his face, okay? (laughs) And then the love that family and friends have for the couple and have for each other. There's a lot of connections here. There's a lot of deep connections here. Many of us have been brothers and sisters in Christ for the entirety of our lives. Uh, I could look at a number of you out there and say for the vast majority of my life, probably 42 of the 44 years, uh, you've been a brother and sister, a part of my family of faith. And it's fun to celebrate something like this together. But you know what? Weddings overflowing, wedding ceremonies, having this overflowing sense or overwhelming sense even at times of love, that's appropriate from God's perspective too. He says it's appropriate to celebrate something like this, but it's also appropriate that they're characterized by an overflowing love, as love is supposed to be central to every human relationship. When Jesus was speaking to his followers in John thirteen thirty four, he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, 
that you also love one another in that way, as I've modeled, as I've demonstrated for you. And we'll get into that in a second. Jesus also said two chapters later in John fifteen twelve, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Peter, in case you think this was exclusive to Jesus, Peter, in 1 Peter 4, 8, he says, and above all things, not above some things, but above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And remember that even in your marriage, God's kind of love, which we'll get into, should cover not just a multitude of disagreements, a multitude of differences of preferences or personalities, but can cover and be greater than even sin itself in relationships. Romans, Paul carries on with this theme. So we have Jesus, we have Peter, we have Paul in Romans 12.10 say to believers in that local church, be devoted to one another in love. So it's perfectly appropriate that at a wedding celebration like this, there would be, one, a sense of celebration, and two, that there would be this overflowing sense of love. Marriages should be overflowing with love too, not just wedding ceremonies. All too often, the, the tip or the peak of a relationship is the marriage ceremony. And then unfortunately, oftentimes it goes downhill from there. Then in terms of the growth of love over time, it maxes out right there. But marriages themselves should be growing in love over time. Past, present, and future love is foundational to any successful marriage. But as I say that, it's very important to realize that just any old love won't cut it. When we're talking about love being characteristic of this relationship, just any kind of love won't stand the test of time. You see, marital success is tied to understanding what real love actually involves. And I want to share a few thoughts with you about what God says about real love. You see, real love, if we were to define it, we would have to understand the difference between how is it commonly defined and then how does God define it. So you would look at a human definition of love. A human definition of love is an intense feeling of or deep affection or attraction to someone. All too often in our day, it's focused primarily on the latter, attraction. The intense feelings of attraction. But divine love, when it's defined, it's sacrificial love. It's love that's characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges on another person's behalf. Being willing to do what is best for another in light of eternal principles without any regard for what it costs or whether they deserve it or not. And so if you think that success in marriage is going to be tied to an application and an understanding of what real love is all about, and we're given that definition from God himself about what real love is, but he gave us that definition not by telling us so much what real love was all about, but by showing us what real love was all about. You see, real love is demonstrated by sacrifice, setting aside self for the benefit of another, Trading me and mine for us and ours, two people becoming one, as God laid out in Genesis 2.24, which I've already touched on. You see, that sense of what real love is, that sacrificial love, that was best modeled by God himself. That's how he showed us how we could go about 
interacting with people in our human relationships by seeing his love for us. And then being in a position to, not because we had any special insight into what real genuine love was all about, but because we had his example or his model of what that love was like to then apply to the relationships or the interactions with people in our lives. So when I think about God's example or sacrifice of what real love was all about, I can't help but think of 1 John chapter 4, 9-11. through 11. Now this is an easier translation than some of you maybe are used to, but it says, God showed us how much he loved us. Now how did he do that? By sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. Now catch this. This is real love. Not this might be real love. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins, a satisfying payment. The original translations use the word propitiation. Big mouthful word there. Jot that down. There'll be a quiz later. Propitiation. But a satisfying payment. He showed us real love by sacrificing himself as a satisfying payment to take away our sins. And John finishes this section by saying, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, not maybe he did, but because he did love us that much, we surely ought to love one another in that way, as, as modeled by that, as following his example for that. And you, you think about an obvious question, well, why did God, to demonstrate his love for us, why did he have to sacrifice himself in our place? Why was sin even a problem? If it says to take away our sins, what was the problem with man's sin? Why did that even arouse a love response by God to send his only son to die in our place? Well, to try to put it relatively in short or succinctly, the problem was that God's character is described by a number of different attributes. But one of the things about God is that God is, in addition to loving He's also righteous and he's also just and he's also perfectly holy. And because he's perfectly holy, there's nothing sinful about him. God is completely pure. And because God is holy and completely pure, he couldn't maintain his holiness while at the same time being tainted by sin or what is wrong because he wouldn't be pure anymore. So now imagine the conundrum we find ourselves in. If mankind is associated with sin, and the Bible says that by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and then death came with sin, and then death spread to all men because all have sinned. Romans chapter 3 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says, all of our works of righteousness are filthy rage. It says, there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. It says, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Romans 3.21 says, all have sinned, not some, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, glory of God, referring to God's holiness. He's perfectly right all of the time. So if man is associated with, in a universal way, with no exceptions to it, if every man, woman, and child on planet earth is associated with things that are not right, sinfulness, and God wants to, in his love, have closeness with that which is tainted by what is wrong, Something has to be done about that sin in order for God, being perfectly holy, to maintain his holiness and yet have union with those that are, that are described as being tainted by that sin. You see, justice demands that debts be satisfied. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wage of sin, 
was death. It caused, sin caused a barrier or a separation between a holy God and a sinful man. And if the debt or the penalty associated with that is eternal separation from God and his goodness, then something would have to be done to satisfy that debt, to break down that, ball, that wall of separation so that a sinful mankind could be united with a loving God. And that's what we're talking about in 1 John 4 when it says that the real love was demonstrated by God loving us enough to send a sacrifice, a satisfying payment to take away our sin. By removing our sin, we could then have access to God. And so God's solution to our problem was he sent a rescuer. He sent a savior. Most people know that Jesus is referred to as the savior of the world. And well, what do saviors do? Saviors save. They rescue those that are drowning. You see, all mankind was in a predicament where they were drowning. They were hopeless and helpless and hellbound apart from Jesus Christ's provision to meet their need. So the Bible says that in Romans 5, 8, but God showed, again demonstrated, this is how we know what love is all about. He showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were sinners. So the options were twofold. One, either we would have had to die by staying forever separated from God, which means spending all of eternity in the place where God is not, spending this life apart from him, or somebody else would have to take our place. But either way, somebody would have to die. It either was going to be us or it was going to be somebody who would take our place. And that's the picture of the Bible, that God in his love, he wanted to send a substitute who could die in our place so that we wouldn't have to die. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for he, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin. He was sinless, the perfect spotless lamb of God. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming for the first time, he said to his followers, he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The spotless lamb of God came with a purpose. He came to die in the place of sinners. And so he made him, Jesus, to become sin for us, even though he knew no sin, with what objective in mind? That we might become the righteousness of God, or we might become right with God in him or through him. God could make us right, not because we were right, because he could take the righteousness of his son and he could credit it to our account when Jesus died in our place. So you have this picture, we come to a place of need. We have a place of need where we're cloaked in or clothed in sinfulness. God in his love sends a substitute to die in our place. As Jesus does that, the value of his death exceeds the debt that's owed by all man's sin for all time. And so as Jesus dies in our place, when we trust in that, Jesus effectively takes his righteousness and he credits it to us, to our account, by wrapping his righteousness around us, not because of what we've done for God, but because of what he's done for us in his great love. And so as Jesus died in our place, we could be declared to be in a right standing with a holy God, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Jesus did in our place. And so at a moment in faith, that righteousness of Jesus is wrapped around each person who will receive it. So that God, when he looks at us now, he doesn't see a separation of sin anymore. He sees the righteousness of his son that we're now wearing. Now he says, come into this intimate relationship with me. Come live life with me and look forward to an eternity spent with me as I'll never let you go. You're now my child. You're born again. You're born into my family. And we will be together for all of eternity. But only because of the solution or the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So how do you get a hold of that? 
You see, believing is the only appropriate response to that sacrifice that God used to demonstrate what real love was all about. If he hadn't have showed us that dying in the place of another, dying the innocent taking the place of the guilty, if he hadn't showed us that that undeserving love is what love is all about, that real love of all involves doing for somebody what they don't deserve, providing for them when they're not lovely, responding to them with care and concern and compassion when there's nothing about them that in that moment is attractive. He showed us that's what real love is all about. And he said, now how do you get a hold of that? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. By me, if anyone enters in, he shall be saved. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, the key is, do you believe this or not? It's childlike faith. A child can understand, I had a need. God loved me so much that he made a way for me to be rescued. If I'll put my trust in his finished work on my behalf, I can be saved and have everlasting life. The next verse says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's in the business of saving. He says in the next verse after that, he who believes is not condemned. But he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. You know, the Apostle Paul was confronted by this question, how do I get in on this? In the 16th chapter of Acts, a jailer who has responded to Paul's testimony says to him, Sir, what must I do to be saved? He had this idea that I must do something for God instead of accepting what God's already done for me. And Paul's answer was clear, it was concise, it was to the point. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not you might be saved. You will at that point in time instantly be saved. The word of God tells us that it's by God's grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, getting in on God's love sacrifice, being a part of God's demonstration of love is as simple as accepting something that is offered to you as a free gift. But even though it's free to you, it wasn't free to him. It was very, very costly. So ultimately, the only way to respond to this kind of sacrificial love is to accept it and embrace it by taking God at his his word as we make an application to your marriage, to your lives. Success in your marriage is going to depend on understanding what real love is. Success in your marriage is going to depend on letting God's spirit produce his kind of love in you. You can't make yourself love like God loves. But God says, I I knew that. And so I put my power, my spirit within you so that that kind of love, that sacrificial kind of love, that real kind of love, it could flow from you, not because of you, but through you. And so that's why in Galatians 2.22, the Bible says that the fruit of the spirit is love. The first thing on the list is love. It's God who wants to produce that kind of sacrificial love in you. And I've got news for you. There's going to be times where Jimmy is very unlovable. (laughs) Perhaps even unlikable. He and I have experienced that on a basketball court before. (laughs) I love him anyway, though. And this will shock you even more. There's going to be times that even Casey is unlovable. Dare I say, even unlikable. (laughs) I know that's hard to believe. No one in the family is laughing at that. They know the truth. (laughs) 
But it's in those moments that human love is going to fail. It's in those moments that just an attraction based on emotion not going to carry you through. It, it will not. Yet in those moments, divine love can overcome. Divine love produced by God's spirit can allow you to see past what's unlovely, can allow you to continue to love anyway, as God showed us that it has nothing to do with what another person deserves, but it's based on loving without regard for whether they deserve it or not. By God's grace, if that becomes consistently true of you, that you're loving the way God loves by letting his spirit produce that kind of love in you, you're going to have an unbelievable marriage. That's what I'm praying for for you. Pray for that for me too. Pray for that for everyone who's here. Good marriages are described by letting God's real love flow in and through us.